It's Wednesday, April 20th, 2022, and this is KBIA's Views of the News. Our weekly roundtable on media behaviors comes to you from the Futures Lab studio at the Reynolds Journalism Institute. I'm Amy Simons, and here with me are my Missouri School of Journalism colleagues, Kathy Kiley and Ernest Perry. On our program this week, Elon Musk tries to take over Twitter, buying up a majority of shares. We'll talk about the media sphere and why it does not see this as a good thing and what the board is doing to fend him off. Alex Jones files for bankruptcy protection for Infowars and two of his other businesses. And more than a dozen news organizations sue the governor of Virginia, saying he is in violation of the state's Freedom of Information Act. We're going to start a little closer to home, though, and talk about a proposal that stands to limit the access to information under the state of Missouri's Sunshine Law. And this is the first such proposed change in the law's nearly 50-year history that would actually reduce access to information. Kathy, tell us a little bit more about what's in House Bill 2049. Well, the background of this is that um, two years ago, Missouri voters, or now it's, I think, closer to four years, uh, Missouri voters, by referendum, uh, voted for Clean Missouri, which uh, included uh, a number of things that have since been repealed. But one of the things that still stands is an expansion of the Sunshine Law to uh, allow uh, public access to legislators' records. And our legislators just can't believe that the public really meant that. And so they are trying to. Well, there are a uh, lot of things in, in yes. The Ratchet that yeah. back. Yeah. Uh, surprise, that tried surprise. To do that with. Yeah. And uh, and so that is what this measure is yeah. all about. It's really limiting the access, particularly to legislative records, but uh, to records generally uh, could make getting records more expensive. Um, and so there's a lot of agitation and activity in the legislature. Um, and I think what everybody, uh, all of us who are advocates of more transparency in government are, are waiting to see is, will this actually make it onto the floor? Because the legislature is very busy. I mean, to me, one of the things that really is, is problematic about this is the increased costs. So they're, they're not only uh, uh, pushing that that the information be restricted. They're, what they're also saying is that if, if an attorney is needed, whether you're talking about someone from the uh, AG's office or, or, a, or an outside mm-hmm. counsel, that they be charged for that attorney's time. And that could be anywhere from uh, $120 to $200 an hour uh, for just the attorney to look over the request. And my guess is that the person making the request doesn't get to choose the attorney to be able to determine what the cost per hour ability. Hour would be. It's a state deciding that exactly. And and the governor tried to do this previously mm-hmm. and was and was basically rebuffed by the state supreme court in a unanimous decision, basically coming out saying, you know, you can't do this. So now what they're trying to do is to change the the sunshine law itself in order to be able to do this, which would make it. Uh, at least physically prohibitive for anybody to be able to to, uh, to to file a request. Yeah, and there's another measure in there that uh, talks about transitory records. Yes, talk about what a transitory um, record well, is. Well, uh, there's an actual it's an actual term of art uh, that archivists use um, in trying to determine what records can be saved and what can't. And of course, it's open to all kinds of interpretation. My concern as somebody who's used records before is um, what this will be interpreted to say is drafts of bills 
will not need to be retained or provided to the public. Well, we've all seen the stories about who's drafting the bill. Is it actually your lawmakers or is it a lobbyist for a special interest? So the only way we have to find that out is if we can actually see the drafts of the bills and this would close that door. So I think, I mean, the bottom line here is that um, public records belong to the public. They are created with public money, um, and they are kept for public use. And there are plenty of exemptions for privacy matters and health and all kinds of things that already exist in the law. So anytime I think we see uh, members of uh, people who walk the corridors of power trying to restrict public access, we should be suspicious. I mean, to me, this is... This is the part I don't understand. When the politicians are running for office, mm -hmm. they're, they're, all, all they're, they're all about transparency. Show us everything yeah. that's happening there. Absolutely. Or, or they're saying that I'm going to be the one to make sure that, that I represent you and I'm going to let you know this is what I'm doing and I'm doing it on your behalf. It's one thing to be a candidate. And it's another thing to be an official. Exactly. As soon as they get in office, mm -hmm. they start trying to restrict the public's ability to be able to see exactly what it is that they're doing, which is one of the things they said they were going to uphold when they were on the campaign trail. So I'm not one to usually come right out and to be critical publicly, but there's another part in this that I find just short of laughable. Another part of this bill that would allow the government to declare itself closed, announce a closing and then not respond to any records requests during that period. This is as we enter the state's endemic, where for the last two years, there was even, what, three months in there close to it where we were in an actual lockdown and the state government was still able to operate in remote operations. So this is another one of those examples of you can work remotely. You're choosing not to in creating blackout periods. Yeah, I mean, you know, to, again, this goes back to, you know, and, and, and Kathy, I think you're, you're right about this, is this incessant belief that somehow if this information gets out there, it's going to hurt or damage the government. When what's really happening, to, at least from, from what I've been able to see is they 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 tend to want to keep things in darkness uh, so that they can can just enact laws or maintain power or and keep it out of the public view for fear of what the public may do if they find out about it, which yeah. i.e. we can vote you out of office. And when we talk about American exceptionalism, what's really exceptional about America, we'd like to think it's us, the people, but if you travel, you know people are the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. What's really exceptional about the American system is the transparency in our government that allows us to keep corruption at bay. You know, Louis Brandeis said it, sunlight is the best of disinfectants and that's why these are called sunshine laws and um, anytime you see somebody trying to eliminate some of that sunlight i think it's a matter of concern i mean we are we all behave better when somebody else is watching and, and so let people watch 
Oh, absolutely. And I, you know, oftentimes it, it comes across as if, you know, there's one party that does this more than the other. But in fact, it's whatever party happens to be in power. Right. We, we were the having the same conversations absolutely. about the Obama oh, One of these bills passed it out of a Senate committee with a unanimous. I mean, it was just a miracle. It's one of the first bipartisan things I've seen in a long time. Democrats and Republicans agreed they want more darkness in government. Well, so one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this and get a little bit more clarity on what the transitory record thing is, is because of a lawsuit that has been filed in the state of Virginia. There are 13 news organizations that have now sued the governor there because he is withholding records from a tip line that was set up for people who wanted to call in and provide feedback about what was happening in schools. Is that the same type of a thing with a transitionary record that he's talking about? Well, I mean, it or is could there be. something I, totally else? I think, something totally different. You know, going I think the problem is what is a transitory record? Yeah, and um, but, who and he's is going to define? These are temporary yes. use documents. I don't know. Are those the same and, thing? In well, this, in you know, case, he no? has set up a hotline to let people report on teachers in their in the public it's school. It's almost like Crime Stoppers. And, yeah. <laughs> That's and, the first thing I thought of when I looked at this. Was, see, what do we you, have, a Crime Stoppers? You thought, you thought yeah. Crime Stoppers. I was thinking it's Orwellian. <laughs> Ca- call and report on your neighbors and your teachers. Yeah. yeah. And so, again, who's to say, but again, this is a hotline created with taxpayer dollars. Mm-hmm. Um Using taxpayer resources, why shouldn't taxpayers get to see what's going on? Right. I mean, I understand the, you know, well, actually, I don't understand now that I think about it. Is, is you know, something, well, I want to make sure that, that the people who, who call into the tip line to talk about issues that they're having with their, with their school, that they remain anonymous uh, and that, you know, their comments on link to go back. And to, he's claiming yeah. or his staffers are claiming that it would be no different than having a conversation with a constituent. Well, there's no conversation there. It's a message. Yeah, go ab- ahead. absolutely. But I mean, the, the problem I have with it mm-hmm. is that what, what's the purpose here? I mean, if you're go- if, if, if you're going to use this information to somehow draft legislation or change policy, then I would think that that information needs to be part of the record so that people can see what the process is for you doing what it is and, that you're claiming And Ernest, under National Archives guidelines, that is exactly the definition of the type of record that needs to be preserved, something that actually affects policy or laws. And so I think that's why the news organizations are asking for this information. There's another difference, I think, between um, talking to a constituent and having a tip line. And that is, when you talk to a constituent, you know who you're talking to. You know who you're talking to. You can ask clarifying questions and then be able to use that information. This is sort of just like Okay, I'm gonna, this may be going a little bit too far in this analogy, but I'm seeing Grandpa Simpson screaming to the clouds (laughs) and and not having any real way of vetting that, that, to to clarify what is being told to you in that report or that accusation against the teacher. Right, and here's the the other part of it, is that you're saying that news organizations don't have access to this, but you're handing it over to the American Enterprise Institute. Mm-hmm. 
one of you know one of your one of your supporters who who is 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 really out there pushing that an agenda an agenda exactly and so you know i have a problem with that you can't say we're going to hand it over to this organization but news organizations don't information is power and everybody in the public deserves the information right okay well so on that note there was a ruling that came down this week in a court that's worth talking about that relates to the publishing of data a federal court reaffirmed that it is is legal to scrape public data that is published online for analysis and republishing. So Ernest, explain how for journalists and for researchers, because this is also a big win for academics, how does this work? Well, the, the, the way this works is that you have uh, both both uh, journalists mm-hmm. uh, and you have researchers, mm-hmm. especially researchers in big data, who will go into, they go into Twitter, they can go into various either social media or websites and scrape in information and gather that information and be able to put it into large data sets and then run an analysis to determine are there trends in certain particular areas. Well, in this particular case, uh, you had a company which was a rival of LinkedIn that was going and scraping trying to determine where are people going, how are, how are, uh, how are trends going in the employment sector and that sort of thing. But this, but so LinkedIn, which was one of the the websites mm-hmm. that was scraped by this company filed a lawsuit basically saying okay you're infringing upon our rights to be able to maintain our own uh, our own information and it violates our terms of service okay and the ninth circuit said no that's not the case this is public record it's been out there they have the uh, ability to be able to do that it, it, it's interesting because it we have always as we've talked about gov websites in this country, government websites, because government data is published and publicly available. Um, This is interesting in the sense that it also is applying to private companies as well, and that it's not just about what is, it kind of of speaks to the ownership of the data that users are putting up there. Yeah, it's on a public utility. It's on the, I mean, what what, what really has become a public mm-hmm. utility, the internet. And uh, when you publish something on the internet, it's out there. And anybody with two clicks can get the code, which is what people are talking about when they talk about scraping. And so I think that's where the court came down and said, you're using the internet. That's how you're doing your business. You're in public. Right. Okay. Um, InfoWars founder Alex Jones filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in U.S. court this week for that business and two other companies that he owns. The right-wing conspiracy theorist is facing big penalties for calling the 2012 Sandy Hook shooting a hoax. Several of the Sandy Hook families say this is nothing but a stalling tactic and that's just what happens. And they are angry that they may not be able to get rapid or speedy conclusion to what they have been told by judges they're they're entitled to. Well, that's the bankruptcy law. They and he definitely is using it to protect his business and to keep operating. I think the interesting thing here is that um, we're increasingly seeing citizens bring libel suits or defamation suits against people who are operating on the internet and we've talked about it here. Um, a lot of the Uh, the internet platforms are not uh, reachable by libel because of an exemption in the law. And so now you see the um, citizens going after actual individual providers like Alex Jones 
And um, and now he's had to go into bankruptcy. I totally understand the family's um, frustration because it will allow Alex Jones to keep operating. Um, but boy, they've had, I think, uh, this is a really interesting precedent and maybe a salutary one because it might cause some people to think twice before they open their big mouths and start lying on the public well, airwaves. Well, that's true. I mean, you know, one of the things is that when you when you look at Infowars and, and where it was prior to Sandy Hook and Alex Jones coming out with this, I mean, there was very little there. Mm-hmm. And his his, I guess, whatever kind of you know rhetoric he's been putting out there has made him a lot of money, which is one of the reasons why... Uh, he wants to shelter he it. He wants to shelter it, exactly. And he still has two cases pending. I mean, he's got one in Texas and one in Connecticut. Those trials have not have not taken place yet. If those trials go, if those the verdicts go against him in that, so those people are standing in line behind all the other people and all the other creditors, there's only so much you can protect. At some point, the value of your property starts to go down. And and eventually, I think that's what's going to happen here. How long that takes, who knows? Whether he's going to try to launch and go into another area, who knows that? Uh, whether he's going to do that. But but again, this is a this is a line of attack that people are actually going after that for them may take a while, but it, but it appears to be working. Small tangent I want to bring up on this story and this issue is I was collecting the materials for the Lynx blog. I noticed that there was a distinct pattern in some of the photos of Alex Jones that was placed, that would be placed on the top of each of those stories. And in more than half of them, I would say two thirds to three quarters. And you can see this in the collection on our Lynx blog and elsewhere on social media or on publications that have covered this that aren't on the blog. In those photos, he looks completely unhinged. Photos of him shouting, photos of him holding his head and looking um, looking forlorn. And it kind of struck a little bit of a, a, a nerve with me just for that quick second of how every one of those editorial decisions that we make adds the potential for bias or setting a tone within a story because these were meant to make him look like a lunatic at the top of these stories. Well, or or make him look as if you know he's he's fighting on your behalf. Uh, I mean, so okay. some some people could could look at it as God, this guy's off as unhinged. Okay, well Others then maybe could, then I maybe I'm giving my own bias right well, there because I'm seeing unhinged. But, but Alex people Jones. who are biased in favor of yeah. him could see that differently. Yeah, but um, if we had a picture of Alex Jones in a Lincoln-esque pose, do you think that really captures the essence of Alex Jones? No. I mean, I'm going to defend the editors there. I, you know, I think you look for a picture that expresses the character you're writing about. I think, okay. you know, based on what I'm hearing and yeah. seeing, that's a pretty accurate depiction of the personality we've got here. I mean, I, I think you're right. Yeah. This is something we talk a lot about mm-hmm. in in class. But I also don't think it is something, it is not incumbent on us as journalists 
to make crazy people look better than they are. And, you know, I think we talked about this. There was a very interesting piece a couple of years ago by a woman, I believe she worked for The Guardian, who happened to be, she was based in London, and she happened to be visiting the United States during a Donald Trump press conference. And when she listened to it, she was struck by the non sequiturs, the incomplete sentences, you know, how it really wasn't making a whole lot of sense. But when you read the news stories, it sounded fairly logical because reporters do what reporters do, which is try to help people make sense of something. And her argument, and I thought it was an interesting argument, is that journalistic norms were actually making Donald Trump yep. look better than yep. he is. And I think same thing goes here. It's a fair perspective, and I appreciate that. As we move on, the world's richest man wants in on one of the world's most used social networks. Last week, Elon Musk bought up more than half of the Twitter stock in a hostile takeover attempt. And since then, the company's board of directors has been working overtime to try and limit his influence. Few in the media think that this is a good thing for Elon Musk to take control of this platform. Chief among them, the editorial board of Jeff Bezos' Washington Post. Yeah, this is one of those where they go like, okay, we we have Mark Zuckerberg over here uh, with Facebook, and now you want Elon Musk with Twitter. Uh, we can only <laughs> handle one at a time, you know. Uh, and that, basically, that's their concern is having someone who you don't really know where he stands because some days he's in support of conservative uh, uh, issues. The next day he could be in support of liberal, and then some days he's just sort of in the middle being Elon being Elon, you know, and you have no idea where he's going to go. Put, give him Twitter where he says, I want to open it up and let everybody be back on, and all of the things that you saw Twitter do in response to what happened in 2020 uh, could immediately go away. Yeah, I mean, er erratic, I think, is a, would be the... Um, <laughs> the word next to his picture in the dictionary, um, I, you know, he's caused a lot of heartburn in his own company, Tesla, mm -hmm. uh, just because of his erratic behavior. So uh, I think, and you know, the other thing is, this looks to me like a stalking horse for Donald Trump. You know, he's letting Donald Trump back on Twitter. Yeah, when Tucker Carlson yeah. is supporting you, you gotta think twice. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, again, I mean, this is this gets back to the big question about what what is it with these social media networks who deny that their publishers don't want to take responsibility for don't the stuff that they publish, uh, and yet um, and now you know they're they're struggling as it is, and to put somebody who's that mercurial at the top, um, I think that's why you see the Twitter board actually taking action to try to keep this from happening. Yeah. Okay, well, the New York Times named Joe Kahn as the paper's new editor yesterday. He succeeds Dean Bacay during a time of what is being called a period of great change for the newspaper. I think we've been in that period of great change for a while, but we can talk about that in a minute. The New York Times, one of two national papers of record, and one that I think of as a source for national and international news. And like the Washington Post, it offers a news wire to other publications that is quite popular for local dailies looking to expand their reach. So that brings me to my next question, which is based on a think piece that you can read about on the blog. Um, is it time for our local newspapers to ditch national and international news that's just filling pages and focus entirely on what's going on locally, even if that means reducing the size of the paper? 
Well, I mean, most local newspapers have reduced in size. Some of them have even reduced in the number of days in which they publish. Sure. Uh, so that that trend has already taken place. Uh, should they move away from, uh, you know, publishing uh, national news and international news? Uh, I don't think that they should because for some people that may that that news source that local news source may be their only news source, and if that's the case, you want to make sure that that your readers are actually engaged in something outside of of the local news, especially on on major issues like the the war in Ukraine or what's happening nationally in COVID that could have an impact on what's going to happen locally. So I think it is important to have some aspect of international and and national news in a local publication. Yeah, the the trend, you are seeing a trend away from printing as much of that. You know, back in the day, it used to be that local papers would have the lead story would be the national news and or something international. You see less of that today. It's not completely eliminated, but I think local papers are focusing more on local news. But I agree with Ernest. Um, we, uh, we, when I was at USA Today, we started to move in that direction. We were trying to encourage the Gannett papers to use USA Today as kind of a wrapper, or I can't remember whether the local wrap the USA Today or vice versa, but to use USA Today copy for national and international news and then to use their own resources and their own space to focus on local. As opposed to using other wire copy, as opposed to using, say, the Associated Press or... Well, that was the idea. Okay. USA Today was providing pre-packaged, pre, you know, paginated yeah. uh, copy. Um, but I, but the idea was the the other idea, less more altruistic, was yeah. to give uh, more space to the local papers to cover local news. Of course, that means you need money to hire reporters to right. cover and, local and news. One of the arguments that's in this piece that resonated with me because I think about um, subscriptions I have, and not to call out the Chicago Tribune, but calling out the Chicago Tribune, that I subscribe and then I let that go for a while. I'll subscribe again. And the reason they ask me why I end up letting it go is because I also subscribe to the Washington Post. And so many of the features or so many of uh, columns or things that are in there are all reprints that are three to five days old from the post that I've already read. And that that's that becomes a problem for many local newspapers mm-hmm. is the fact that they're relying on that when they don't have uh, stories locally to put in. And part of the reason they don't have those stories is because they don't have the staff mm-hmm. uh, and, and they don't have the, the they don't have the staff to be able to generate that as well as they don't have the the people even in the in the background to actually pull that together it's a lot easier to grab a story off of AP or to pull a story off of of the Washington Post and New York Times and plug that in than there is to have a reporter go out and cover the story, copy editors, editors, that sort of thing. It's much more cost effective to do that. That's where I think local news is starting to run into problems. And I have an idea to turn Amy's idea on its head, and I don't think we have enough time to talk about it, but I'm going to save it for another show. A little tease there, but I have an idea on how we can address that problem. Okay. Okay, well... 
to hope, be continued. I'm hoping she shares right. it with me early enough <laughs> so that I can prepare for it. But yeah. that's fine. Save time for Kathy in next week's show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> before we go, I do want to take a quick second to remind everyone that the Unbound Book Festival is soon upon us with the first event kicking off Friday night. Unbound Book Festival is to book lovers what True False is to film buffs. And there are events starting Friday evening that are free and open to the public. And there are also a couple of items of note that some of our colleagues have also been working on. Um, KBIA has interviews with several of the authors that you can find those on the kbia.org website. There is a new author interview that is going to be released every day this week that you can go ahead and get previews of folks you might be able to see or talk to or get autographs copies of their books in a few days. Also, our colleague Professor Jackie Bell will be in conversation with the Women Photographer of the Year honorees. Uh, Photographer of the Year, or POI, is an annual competition that's hosted here at the Journalism School. So she will be um, talking with the women who were honored at Ragtag Cinema at 11.45 on Saturday. So lots of really good events, things to check out. Um, Chatelaine will yeah. also be here, yeah. a graduate of the Missouri School of Journalism. We've talked about her book, about yeah, the history. Very interesting of, book. It's yeah. a fantastic book, right. if you haven't read it yet, about um, the history of black owners of McDonald's franchises right. Right. throughout the 60s, 70s, and 80s, right. 90s too. So a fantastic thing. Check out this weekend. Um, we are pretty much out of time for this week. I'd like to thank you for spending the last half hour with us. You can read more about each of the topics we talked about today on our Lynx blog under both the programs and podcast tabs at kbia.org. We're also available wherever you get your podcast downloads, including iTunes, Stitcher, and uh, other places as well. You can like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Our handle there is at views on KBIA. These are all great ways to watch and listen to our program again, leave comments, questions, see previews of what Kathy wants to talk about next week, and more. Our thanks to Travis McMillan for directing today's show, Aaron Hay for handling the audio, and Tim Pilcher for our original theme music. 